thank you for the kind invitation to be here today. Uh, I am the interim national representative of the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, the GARBC. By the way, you've made me feel right at home. We have a bunch of back row Baptists here today, I hope. Are you all Baptist anyways? But uh, we'll see about that. But we're really glad to be here. My wife and I are on a two-week ministry trek, and so this is the final stop of our ministry. Our association of churches, we are not a denomination. We are an association of independent Baptist churches, and uh, we uh, have about 1,200 churches nationwide, uh, mostly uh, through the Midwest, upper Midwest and Northeast, some in the West and uh, we, uh, we have several ministry divisions. Uh, our publishing ministry is perhaps the best-known ministry, Regular Baptist Press, and we have uh, opportunity to place chaplains. We, uh, we have uh, especially what is important, and we'll address that as I address the text that I've been assigned, uh, we have what's called RB Generate, which is a ministry specifically designed to help assist churches that are in desperate need of revitalization or new church planning efforts. And uh, we, uh, we're really investing a significant amount of resources in that. Uh, I am the unlikely uh, person to fill this role. Uh, we had a vacancy quite unexpectedly occur. And so I, uh, I graduated from high school uh, after the military draft was dismantled, but I know what it's like to be drafted. The council that governs our fellowship said, you will do this. And uh, they said, go tell your wife. I said, I'll go and ask my wife. And uh, so I, I concluded ministry a bit early. And so now this is my post-pastoral retirement life and really enjoy doing it. It's been a ball, to be honest with you, to be uh, with churches, with associations on university campuses, on colleges. To, I am the chief recruiter from the GARBC. We need young men and women uh, who will be uh, ready, capable, called by God to serve in pastoral and missionary ministry. So that's one of the key things that I'm trying to do in uh, my interim ministries, make connections with, uh, with young people and really uh, draw them generally to ministry, but also then to ministry with our churches. And I'll address a little bit more of that as, as I share. Uh, my schedule is uh, the Japanese used to uh, be well known for just-in-time delivery of manufacturing materials. So my, my message is hopefully arrived just in time, no PowerPoint, no notes to hand out, which is very atypical for me, but I think I'm ready. So let's go. The text is 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I've been assigned the text. Uh, and I, my, my desire today is not to be uh, sermonically uh, pure. I, I want to be rather didactic. I just want to teach through the passage and do so in a practical way, I would even encourage, uh, I think some preaching, not all, but some preaching in New Testament times was a dialogue, not even a monologue. There was interaction with a congregation. And so if, if I startle you, if I surprise you, if you got a question, just stop me. I, perhaps I can uh, encourage you to uh, think through this text. But let's read the text. If any of my words are, are, are not helpful, at least the words of God will be. So let's read the text, let the elders, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may fear. 
I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. Uh, but those of some uh, men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. You may not be aware of it living in, uh, I have two daughters that graduated from Bob Jones University, and they used to speak about living in the bubble. I, I presume you know what that means. That, that church life here in Greenville is, is not normal. Now, I, I don't want that to startle you. But if you go two hours away, maybe even more, and get into a normal local church, you will then be able to see what's going on in churches. Uh, the crisis really that we have, at least in my little circle of the world, is really twofold. That is increasingly men leaving ministry and doing so because they have disqualified themselves in various and seemingly increasingly flagrant ways. Anecdotally, just a, a month ago, I had a Sunday free church calls me in crisis and a young pastor in a good flourishing ministry uh, had committed immorality with a church member. And so they asked me to come in and give counsel to deacons and to encourage the church family. But literally, when you do that, you walk into a situation where there's uh, just the aftermath of a terrible accident scene. It's, it's all kinds of damage that people experience. That, that's one of the difficulties. I, I, uh, my wife and I have completed 46 years of pastoral ministry. It's fairly unusual in this day and age for someone to start at 21 as I did and to move all the way through ministry and complete that ministry and do so without uh, any break in that. That's very uh, becoming quite uncommon. There's, secondly, there is a dearth, we might say a paucity, of qualified men who are ready to enter pastoral or missionary ministry. Fewer and fewer are the men called by God who meet biblical qualifications uh, who possess the necessary aptitude and skills, who possess the agreement and commendation of their present local church ministry. Uh, for every uh, church, excuse me, for every resume that I have now of men ready and capable to enter ministry, I have now four churches. So, so you understand the difficulty. It is very common out there for churches to go one two, three years plus seek, seeking a pastor and not able to find men who are capable, qualified, called by God. So we are entering the early stage uh, of a crisis. But I, I remind myself constantly that that situation is not a challenge to God. He's the Lord of the harvest and crisis are, uh, crises are opportunities for God to work in a very significant way and to refine our trust in him. And so when we walk through a text like this, it really provides for us a bit of a prescription of how, how is it that we identify, care for, train leaders called by God into ministry. 
So 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 25 is my assignment. And again, I want to approach this. If we have some homileticians here and you're grading me on homiletics, just put your sheet away because that's not my purpose. I just want to teach through the passage and do so in a way that will be really helpful to you. Uh, obviously, if you let your eyes wander or you remember previous uh, sessions that you've had here, you, you remember that Paul has been addressing different categories of people. Chapter, uh, chapter 4, he speaks of Timothy as the young pastor, trying to say, don't let others despise your youthfulness in pastoral ministry. He speaks about uh, the elder women and men, and there I would use elder with a lowercase e, simply older. Uh, th those who have been around for a while in knowing and living for Christ. He speaks about widows. He speaks about uh, young widows and older widows. So you, you understand what he's doing, trying to address the various levels of, of relations that exist in the local church. And now in this passage, he's going to speak to the elders. And there, I think there that's the capital E, elder. Now, I am a, I am a Baptist without apology. Uh, just a slight anecdote. Um, I had a high school buddy, quote unquote, that's using air quotes, who in order to harass me for being a Christian, he never called me David. He called me Baptist for all my senior year in high school. And so that's a badge. I said, okay, I guess it's true. So call me Baptist if you will. Um, so if, if you are a biblical Baptist, at least in my understanding of it, that we would understand the office of pastor having terms that uh, address the same office in different ways, one of which is elder. And so we have elder, we have bishop or overseer, and we have pastor. And those terms with different emphases refer to the same office. I think, for example, if you were to go into Ephesians chapter 4, uh, he speaks there about the gift of the gifts of Christ to the church. Now, those gifts in Ephesians 4 are to be uh, distinguished from the gifts of Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, they are gifts of ability. Here, they are gifts of offices, gifts of people, and they're the gifts of apostle and prophet. Now, we don't have apostles and prophets today. If you exist in a church where they claim that they are apostles or prophets, then leave that church because they're not existent today. They are remaining in the product of the Word of God, of the New Testament Scriptures. However, the gift of the office of uh, evangelist, which we would mostly uh, equate with a modern role of missionary, and the office, combined office of pastor-teacher, there's the gift of offices to the church, uh, offices that are filled by men uh, called by God into, into ministry. And so, when we walk through this passage, just in two sections, he speaks about the elder, and he says, let the elders, verse 17, who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. So again there, we're addressing elders. Um, do we have any, I hope not, I, I didn't ask Neil, is it dangerous to ask these questions? Do we have any Mormons here? Do we have any Mormon elders? Whew, I'm safe here then, Okay. We don't commonly refer to pastors as elders today. Um, and, and so he speaks about here the, the practice of ruling. 
Now this, uh, if you looked at the lexicon, this refers to the act of giving leadership and supervision to church ministries. Now, the, the use of the term elder does not suggest in, in, in his ruling work, does not suggest an abrasive, dictatorial um, focus in leadership. And, and, I, and I fear sometimes that we view the pastoral ministry or the elder as the guy who's large and in charge and is sometimes fairly abusive in the exercise of that ministry. Now, Paul's uh, previous use of the term uh, he speaks in chapter 3 and verse 4 of this very epistle. He speaks about the elder uh, describing the activities of a firm and a gracious father. He manages his household well. And so as I, as I look at, first of all, the office and the ministry of the office, we have, and I, uh, I guess, could, may I orally quiz you? Can, may I just do that? And no, no profs may answer. Uh, at least no profs may answer because I fear you might be wrong and I don't want to correct you publicly. So um, what would be the key passage, the two key passages that use the term pastor? Any of you seminary students know? Come on, this needs to fly. You're seminary guys, gals. It would be Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 5. All right? And, and 1 Peter 5 is especially clear. He's, the, the, the elders that are among you shepherd the flock of God. There's the verb form of pastor. Pastor the, the flock well. And interestingly, in that 1 Peter 5 passage, there are the three terms used in different ways. He speaks to the elders, but then he uses verb forms of shepherd and oversee, taking oversight of the flock. And remember, that passage says, don't do it by constraint, but do it willingly. I hope you are even studying, not because you have to, but because you want to. You serve, not because somehow God uh, demands it of you, though he does, but rather it's our privilege and opportunity to do so. And so there's a lot in that passage that would deal with pastor. Of course, the office of pastor-teacher is clearly identified in, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, so, so it's the, the office of pastor. It's the office of elder, which I think seems to emphasize the maturity of life that's evidenced in the character. That not so much speaking of age, there's some really... Uh, immature, older pastors. And there are some really mature, younger pastors. So it's not necessarily referencing age, but it does speak about the requirement of, of maturity, of eminent godliness. And then the third term, it's 1 Timothy 3, the one that desires the office of a bishop, or we might better say to be consistent, the one who desires the office of an overseer desires a good thing and obtains favor from God. Uh, an overseer, I've coined this definition through the years, an overseer is someone that is responsible to identify, train, and mobilize the saints so that together pastor and people can do the work of ministry. So, so the work of an overseer is to, is to train. Uh, maybe the best modern illustration of an overseer is, although the images break down, but it's a little bit like a coach. 
where a coach trains his team. They go through drills. They teach uh, the, the, the elements of the game, and then the game begins. All the skills are put into place so that the team functions effectively. And so the office is the office of elder, overseer, and pastor. And you'll notice the ministry, and this will not be my priority this morning, but you'll notice the ministry because he says, give double honor to those, especially those who labor in the ministry of the word. I think that, that when you think about the primary way ministry is done by the elder, pastor, overseer, it's by the ministry of the word. He leads in the teaching and the implementation, the modeling of truth in a congregational setting. And so you have here uh, the, the office, you have the ministry, which is primarily in the word and teaching, and, and then you have the team. And I do think that probably at least by implication, if not by clear teaching, you're likely talking about here a local church with a multi multiple staff of elders. You have specialization. You have uh, a leading teaching elder, pastor, who is responsible in his public teaching of the word of God, while others may have more specialized uh, ministries. You have the work. Um, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And, and he uses the term, especially those who, who labor. And the word there means to grow weary of, uh, to, to give uh, laborious effort. Uh, it is, for you seminary students, is, is study ever hard or does it just come easily to you? I, I mean, some of you, you may find it comes easily to you. Listen, I have pastored for 46 years and, and to, 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 uh, to prepare expository messages week to week and then to oversee and administrate the work of God in a local church setting is an exacting, laborious task. Now, there's joy in doing that work, but work it is. And I, and I think that's the image. I, I, I think sometimes we don't have the right image about uh, even pastoral ministry because we, we just think it's not... It, I'm just such a winsome personality. I have just natural giftedness. I can tramp through the manure field and come out smelling like a rose. I'm just a wonderful person. and Everybody loves me, and everybody's going to want to follow me. Listen, that's, that's not real life. That's not real ministry because uh, ministry is hard work. Uh, it, typically, in the process of doing expository messages, if I had a normal time frame, and there is no such thing as normal in ministry because you have weeks that go crazy. But it would normally take me minimum of seven, eight hours, sometimes longer, to prepare one message. And, and that's not just even thinking about private study. That's thinking beyond that. So it's, it's just hard work. And then the consideration. Uh, what care should be given to elders? And he uses the term double honor. Expositors have a really interesting uh, time with what that means. I know we preachers think that means double pay. I, I wish it were so. Uh, understand that the first 17 years of my life in ministry, we were in food stamp uh, WIC territory. So we, we were not uh, receiving double honor. Some have said it refers to double pay, unlikely, by the way. 
some, it's very likely this may be a reference to those that were working secular jobs, but also were laboring in that first century culture in pastoral ministry. And so he said, don't think you got a freebie. You, you need to pay him for your for his ministry as a pastor, even if he's earning money in a secular setting. That's a very possible way to look at this. Uh, I think another image of this is he's trying to say that that you need to give your pastoral leaders respect and remuneration. And so, if I were to be really practical, and not not to the old folks here. To, to the younger seminarians. I know we probably have some older seminarians, but when's the last time you have deliberately and consciously spoken to your pastors and shared sincere appreciation for their labor on your behalf and for your church? Uh, when's the last time you wrote a handwritten note? There is such a thing. Do, do you know what pens are? Do you know that there's such a thing as paper? Do you know the power of receiving not an email, but a handwritten note? I can tell you that some of the times where I have been most greatly encouraged is when I received a handwritten note of sincere appreciation, uh, especially from people that I, I, I did not expect that. And so it's just to have that attitude of respect and appreciation for uh, your pastors. Um, now, notice the word in the text. He said, you consider them worthy of double honor. So the word there means to, uh, to deem worthy or to think of something as worthwhile. Even if double pay is not possible, that we have, here's how we value these people. And certainly Paul is indicating that the elders should be respected and not ignored, especially those whose focus is the ministry of the word and teaching, those who literally weary themselves from labor for Christ. And to remember that there is, to my knowledge, only one vocation noted in all of Scripture that says you ought to desire this ministry. And if you desire service as an elder or as an overseer, you desire a good thing. I don't know of any other vocation that God uh, speaks in that way of. It's really important for us to think through that. Ministry as a gift of Christ to the church. I, I, I've said now, I've functioned now, this is my 15th month as an interim in my role. And when I stepped into this role, I stepped down in ministry from really the highest occupation that could be had by any man, which is to serve as a pastor or a missionary. And so when we think of this this text, I, I would remind myself that ministry is not, uh, uh, is not a job. Uh, ministry is not nine to five. It's a vocation. It's a calling. Uh, I would even, uh, again, I, I think I can be informal. What would, uh, I, I had them pretty clear in mind, but <clears throat> we talk often about the call of God to ministry. S seminary students. Give me the four or five marks of the call of God to ministry. What would some of them be? Okay, uh, internal desire. And that would be Paul saying, what was me if I don't preach the gospel? You, you can try to hush me, but I, I, nobody can hush me. 
I, I, I'll, I'll fall apart if I don't preach. If a man desires the office of a bishop, what would be another mark of the call of God upon a man's life? Okay, that would be, I would say that would be the last thing. It's, it's uh, a church that says, we agree. And, and I think that's some of the image from the text when he speaks about the laying out of hands. It's the public recognition of a local church that says, we agree, this man is called by God. What else? Okay. First uh, Timothy 3. And you may want to even turn to it, looking at it. Have you walked through that passage recently? How many of the qualities listed in First Peter or First Timothy three, where where Peter, or excuse me, Paul is addressing uh, those qualities? How many of them have to 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 do with ability as opposed to uh, character? Uh, that would be an open Bible question. You're allowed to look at First Timothy three. He may refer to, he refers to at least one ability. The one ability is what? He needs to be apt to teach. We may also want to say that being able to manage your household well, that's kind of a hybrid. That's a both hand. Uh, you got you to be mature to manage your household well, but you also have to have skill. Everything else is ability. Or excuse me, everything else, I said that wrongly. Uh, everything else is character. I will tell you the, the biggest the biggest flaw that I see in our whole process of identifying and sele selecting men for ministry particularly is we don't emphasize the kind of man he is first. Uh, so um, uh, for you seminary students particularly, um, in the last 30 days, how many of those days have you spent quality daily time with God by reading your Bible and praying out of those 30 days? Um, those of you who are married, how many uh, each week are you in the practice of praying with your spouse four or five times a week? Uh, for seminary students, are you deliberately organizing your life to intersect with lost people so that you can share Christ with them? See, see, those are all who we are. Uh, I, I can tell you story after story after story after 46 years of ministry that I could just... Uh, oh, that clock is a terrible thing, but... Uh, one one day, everybody was gone from church, and um, a, a Sunday school teacher ambushed me, and I mean, they were mad at me. <laughs> they got within an inch of my nose and for five minutes berated me, and nobody's around. Nobody can protect me. So, so do I fight fire with fire? Or rather, thankfully, by some level of maturity and, and momentary grace, God helps me respond correctly to a man who's way over the top and needed to be rebuked at some point. But uh, and, and God, that morning in my devotions, I actually had devotions on Sunday morning, um, revolutionary thought, you can actually do that, um, that... Uh, 
God gave me no heads up to say, hey, listen, you're going to get ambushed, so be ready. I mean, there's no readiness for it. It just happens. And see, what is the, what is the key thing there is what kind of man are we? What, what kind of person are we? The quality of our life. And so let me summarize. I, I need to, as, as short as I can here, let's, let's look at verses 21 to 24 because I really need to get to this to not have the seminary profs be mad at me for not getting to the key part of the text here. Uh, the elder and all must keep this charge. You'll notice in verse, uh, verse uh, 21, I charge you before God, before um, the Lord Jesus and the elect angels. Um, I, I pray that many of you seminarians w- w- would be led by God into ministry. But you need to understand how important it is. It's not something done lightly. First um, Peter 5, the passage that I referred to earlier, he talks about us being this, the, the shepherds, but we are responsible to the chief, chief shepherd. And when he appears, those who are faithful will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. You see, every pastor serves under the accountability and responsibility and authority of Jesus Christ himself, and that's a bit of what Paul's trying to help Timothy understand. I, I'm going to lay this before you uh, in, the, in the presence of God himself. And he speaks about doing that um, without prejudice or partiality. Particularly, and he'll, you'll notice in the text what he does here, in the address of sin. Uh, don't show uh, uh, partiality. Do it without prejudice. And then he says, don't lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Ministry, particularly the selection of men for ministry by pastors, by church congregations, is to be done with careful pedestrian care. Uh, do any of you get anxious with the pace or the years you spend in seminary training? It's just kind of piles up year after year. It, 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 it tends to be slow. Um, walk through the process of selecting people for ministry. Uh, Too often we allow the urgent need for men to allow us to rush by the appropriate training process. And so churches need to take the lead in identifying and training and mobilizing men for pastoral and missionary ministry. And I think the seminary profs would all say this. It's not the seminary's job to do this. It's not the university's job to train people for ministry. It's the local church's job. And I think one of the, one of the things that needs to start shifting is that, is that churches need to, uh, need to step forward in that role. And often the seminaries and the universities have stepped in because there's been a vacuum of ministry and uh, activity on the part of local churches. So as I travel, I'm just urging urging churches, you need to start identifying people, training them, identifying them, using them in local church ministry, seeing God's blessing on their life, and then finally give the confirmation of their, uh, their calling into ministry by that public act of laying on of hands. So churches need to do that. And you'll find that to be the the eminent biblical model, Acts 13, remember Saul and Tarsus ministering before the Lord. 
and the Holy Spirit speaking to the congregation saying, separate to me Saul and Barnabas for the work I've called them to. And so the model is certainly there. And so often in our haste, in our urgency to fill the rapidly emptying pulpits across our movement, we would do well to follow Paul's instructions. Don't lay hands suddenly on anyone. Don't do this hastily. Don't share in other people's sins. And then do you notice, and again, if I could be a bit pastoral, do you notice the, the last three words of that verse? Keep yourself pure. And you could look at 1 Timothy 4, just across the page, where, where he has said uh, to, uh, to Timothy, he's encouraged him to keep the good doctrine, to, to be careful how you live. He said it in verse, in chapter 6, he said the same thing as he has ended the epistle to try to urge him to care in how he lived. You see, much of the difficulty of men washing out in ministry is due to the absence of the uh, essential quality of the one aspiring to pastoral ministry and its holiness. I... I, I am constantly reminded that the greatest, the greatest tool that God has in hand is a holy man. It's not. Do you understand that God, in His pattern and process, that you remember First Corinthians one twenty eight to thirty, God has not chosen. God has chosen what is, what is uh, worthless and despised. To bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that we are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. Earlier in that passage in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, God has not chosen many mighty, many noble. God does not call us into ministry because we have great ability. God, on the contrary, has often used people of rather meager ability who are holy who are consecrated to him, and God has been able to manifest his grace in magnificent measure and brought honor to himself by the lives of fairly common, ordinary people. Now, I don't want to unnecessarily shock you all today, but um, for the most part, uh, I don't know you, but if, if the scripture is true, and it is, you are all rather ordinary. It's, we're, we're just average people, common people. And yet, common people, saved by God's grace, redeemed by his grace, made holy day by day, God is able to do some exceedingly wonderful things in and through people who will simply know him, love him, and serve him. Time does not permit me to give the full treatment of this text, but I, I would hope you would you would see and sense just just a couple things. Uh, I did not even give the the full definition of what it means to be called by God, and you gave some really good helps in that regard. But um, I, I would encourage you uh, from this very epistle a little earlier, First Timothy four seven. You remember that? You can probably bring it to memory, can't you? Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness for the life that now is and the life that is to come. Bodily exercise profits little. Some of us take that quite literally. Um, but rather, in comparison to spiritual disciplines, bodily exercise does profit little. 
but godliness is profitable to all things. I love W.E. Vine's definition of godliness. He writes this. He said that godliness is devotion to God that results in attitudes and actions that please God. So discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. See what God will do in and through your life, that perhaps God might use you in a significant way uh, in, in vocational ministry, and, and we could be among those who are the common, ordinary, uh, routine people that God delights in manifesting his grace uh, to, to great glory to himself and to the profit of God's church. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. May Christ be honored just in the brief time we've had today. Father, in my rather scattered thoughts, uh, I, I pray that there would be the sense of, of uh, delight and joy in who Christ is, all that he means to us. Uh, it is from him that we are in Christ Jesus. He became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, in order that, as it notes in Scripture, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so we end today uh, with our boast of who Christ is and all he has done on our behalf. Thank you for the privilege of being able to uh, open the Word of God, to know you in the Word of God. Thank you for this privilege today. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.